Well, I wonder how you think society can be changed. Or maybe how you think you could change society. A lot of us try to make a great effort at this. We think we can change society maybe through different politicians taking power. Maybe if economics would be switched or changed a little bit, then society would change. Maybe if, maybe if there were different teachers or maybe you could go to a different school or maybe if some schools could be shut down or built up, then that would help change society around us. Maybe, maybe tax incentives would help change society, maybe more or less. Maybe longer sermons could change society. Maybe, maybe shorter sermons could change society. Not taking a vote, not a democracy this morning. One of the most seismic and abrupt political organizations in the last hundred years began in the 1970s. It was a powerful and ruthlessly tactful political organization. Jerry Falwell saw a problem in America and set out to solve it. Through alliances and political savviness, he formed an organization called the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority played a key role in mobilizing Christians toward political races throughout the late 70s and early and late 1980s. And the goal of the moral majority was in part, I think at best, political power by placing people in positions in order to hold back the tide of society falling apart. So if we can just put the right people in place, then we can hold back or conserve the society that we have. And it certainly worked for a while in terms of getting their candidates in place and candidates won. It was a tide that seemed to have no end. But They also aimed, secondly, at advancing conservative social values. And to a degree, they didn't succeed at this. So they did succeed at placing people in power, but they didn't succeed at advancing maybe social values. Because when you think of it, the 90s compared to the 80s, compared to the 70s, they pretty much look the same from a social standpoint, even up into our day. And many of the leaders who were part of this moral majority actually later would fall out of uh, politics and ministry because of their own sexual and financial scandal in their own homes. Nevertheless, in, in my opinion, the promoted attempt of the moral majority was, I think, misguided. They wanted to change America, but they failed. Their desire was noble. You know, it is, it is right to aim to legislate morally. Can, can you imagine the opposite? Aiming to not legislate morally. You know, a you ought, to, you ought to choose to do things from a moral standpoint. This, this is even works in the private sector. A, a Christian banker should bank morally. A farmer should operate his business or their business morally. A teacher should teach morals and promote morality. But ultimately, the moral majority failed because no set of laws, no organization, not even a friendship can actually change a person. Right, so the message that they were aiming to do was confrontational. They were, they were looking at society and saying, you're bad, and I want to fix you. And that's an aggressive thing to do, right? That's, that's actually, you could say, and I'm not saying this is, but you could say that it's a very offensive thing. It's an offensive thing to look at someone and say, you're not what you should be, and I have answers to make you what you should be. It's looking at someone and saying, you're doing the wrong thing. You're acting the wrong way. Do this and be better. Now, a point of view that you and I can have in coming to our sermon's text this morning is understanding that the gospel toward non-believers is actually a very offensive thing toward them. The gospel message doesn't say you're 
acting wrong or doing the wrong thing. It actually is even more offensive than maybe what you might politically try to change or economically try to change or socially try to change even within a friendship. The gospel's message is actually looking at someone in the eye and saying, you, at your root, are wrong. The gospel message is saying to people, you are a sinner, not just acting the wrong way or doing the wrong thing, but at your core, you're not what God has called you to be. And it's certainly off-putting, saying you're the problem. You're sinful. You're bad from the inside out. You can't clean yourself up. You can't fix yourself. You can't act right because you're you. I mean, imagine proposing to your future spouse on that standpoint. You know, I I really want us to live the rest of our lives together, but the issue is, is that you're a really big problem. They might respond in like kind. You know, you're actually a really big problem too, so here we go. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I fully realize, and others around you fully realize that the gospel is actually an off-putting thing. It's an offensive thing. It's us saying the outside must invade your heart from the, to the inside and actually change you all the way around. And it's certainly non-inclusive in a society today that wants everything to be inclusive. But if non-Christian, if you would just give me your ear, I want to tell you and the rest of us, recognizing that the gospel is actually intentionally for Christians while allowing others to look in on it and see what's different about it. If you, if you would give me your ear, I want to tell you why the message of the gospel, though offensive towards a hard heart, is actually the greatest and most helpful and most joyful message that you can even imagine. For the Christian, the gospel is a sense of assurance that what has been done to us, for us, is not something that we could mess up from the beginning. And to the non-Christian, hopefully you'll, you'll see that the gospel message is actually in, in some way, a clarifying statement of why we think everything is the way it is. Now, our sermon this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 5, and uh, though it will cover a, a couple of verses, I want to really zoom in on verse 32, where verse 32 gives us a proclamation of the reason why Christ came. So, both last week and throughout the rest of this month, I, I want to preach a series of five messages on why Christ came. We celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate him being born of a virgin. We celebrate him coming incarnate from on high, but he himself actually tells us in a myriad of ways why exactly he came. And so he gives us almost clarifying, crystallizing uh, examples and phrases and sayings of why he said he arrived in all. And it's one of the most clarifying, defining statements in this morning's case that Jesus ever made. In fact, to understand the statement is to grasp the essential uniqueness of the Christian message all around. He says that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Exactly why he came. And in that sentence, Jesus tells us why he came incarnate, why he came born of a virgin, why he came and lived without any sin, why he was delivered to death by sinful men, why he rose from the grave, why he ascended to heaven, and why even today he intercedes for his beloved. He came, not for the righteous, but for sinners to come toward repentance. The whole glorious structure of salvation is summed up in that one statement. He came to call sinners to repentance. So I want us to hover around that for a period of time and hopefully see the things that, that seat to the top and allow that to clarify the gospel to us. These three words that I want to zoom in on, if you have an outline, uh, you'll notice that there are three points coming from three different words in this text. Three words will serve, hopefully, as the shape of the sermon. Uh, now, just to clarify, recognize that there are people here who are not normally here. The, the way that we aim 
to have the Word come to us on a regular basis on a Sunday mornings is to submit ourselves, so submit our conscience, you could say, submit ourselves to the shape and the tone and the structure of the text, allowing it to speak for us. Wherever it goes, that's where we go. And in this case, there seem to be three clear things about Jesus' call and command that come to the top from verse 32. So Christ calls. Christ comes exclusively for sinners, and He comes for their own repentance. There, here is a path of His pursuit. There is a people of who He's going towards, and there is a purpose for His own action. So I want you to zoom in. He states a negative, what He's not doing, and then He comes to what He says He's come to do. So first, He came to call. He came to speak. He came to cry out. Jesus came to call. It's His proclamation's path. Jesus said that there Jesus said there that that's the reason why he came, to call or to call out. Now, the Greek word here, just call, it's, it's used more than 150 times in the New Testament. And what it means is it's like, a, it's like an invitation going out, or it's like a summoning. It's a general broadcast of what he's aiming to do. Christ came to call generally. It would be like your dad in, a, in the midst of a storm calls out to the house, come to the tornado shelter, which means it can be ignored. And it can be responded to. But either way, Jesus came to call. Now, there are two ways that you can look at a calling in, in the New Testament. There are two ways that calling is, is used. There's a general broadcast. It's like a call to you, come to the tornado shelter. Or it's called sinners to repentance. And there's also a, a specific call that God can put on your heart. So when you read the New Testament, you see call or summons or invitation used in two major ways. There's a general verbal call with a variety of reactions. So maybe that's like someone preaching to you on a Sunday morning, calling us to heed God's word. But then there's also a particular or spiritual call with one reaction. So the general is done by the words of Christ, Christ's words going out. That's why we preach from a Bible. That's why Christ spoke of the words of God to people. And then there's a particular one that's done by the Spirit through the words of Christ. So that's, that's where God would actually fully summon you to himself. It's like, it's like your dad would grab you, using dad illustrations a lot, it's like your mom would grab you by the shirt and pull you in tighter. That's the specific call where God has drawn you to himself. No longer are you rebellious because he's changed your heart. But here, Jesus is giving a general call. And his general call throughout the gospels and later through his apostles throughout the New Testament, the general call is done by Christ's words going out. You might think of it like a sermon or a lesson or a teaching where Christ is doing something in particular. That's what Jesus says he's come to do. He's come to call everyone to the truth of the gospel. That's his message, the hope that we can have in him. He's calling that out. And by the preaching of the word, he's saying that everyone is invited to him, like a wedding invitation going out. If you get this, come to the wedding. We're a calling of sinners to repentance or to conversion is broadcast widely and deeply. This is a call for a certain goal. Scripturally, you see this through various prepositions where he actually calls out to people to eternal life. He calls out to people into particular fellowship or to freedom from sin or to sanctification or to peace. He's calling out, he's broadcasting. And so this goes out in a particular way. We see that when he does call, there is a presentation of his redemptive plan for his people. It's an invitation for people to come to him in repentance and faith. And it also comes with a, with a seal or a promise of certain forgiveness, and salva certain forgiveness for salvation. Whether met with indifference, rejection, or acceptance, or even trust, the cast of the gospel is like a net that has explanation. 
with an invitation to believe, an assurance of forgiveness by belief. Now, I'm going to kind of put this on the table and spread it out a little bit broader for us to understand. There's a broad biblical context when we think of what Jesus does through the call. In the, in the New Testament, Jesus issues general calls regularly. Like he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. But we see time and time again that his gospel, his call, is regularly rejected by people who hear it. And this isn't just in him. His calling goes out and is rejected in the book of Acts. So as his apostles would go out and do the same thing that he was doing, broadcast generally for, for people to come to him, they would also be rejected. The person of John says that they will be sinfully rejected. So it's something that you receive, and if you don't subscribe to it or ascend to it, then you're in sin by doing this. But Hebrews also says that those who reject it have hardened hearts. So you can see that this is not just a broadcast, like a siren for testing a tornado on the first Thursday of the month or whatever it is at noon, that just like, okay, if you ignore it, that's fine. There's not really a tornado there. What the call is acting like to us in the scriptures is that it is something that is freely, generally placed on the table. But if you reject it, there are consequences to that. And if you accept it, there, there is great joy to be found in its acceptance. And thankfully, it's not always rejected. We see this scripturally, and God willing, it is not only rejected, uh, or it's not only not rejected in the scriptures, but also in our own hearts. Check the verses of our passage. Look at verse 37, up where we were from 32. Look at verse 27. It says, after he went out, this is Jesus, after he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, follow me. So he gave a broadcast, a call, and then Levi, leaving everything, rose and followed him. This is where Jesus calls generally a tax collector named Levi to become one of his disciples. Uh, now, this person of Levi, he would have been hated by everyone around him. So it's already a scandal that he's even talking to the person of Levi. I'll get into it in a little bit, but Levi would have been hated. So that's kind of the general tone and context of this. He was a Jewish man who unfairly took money from Jews. So one of our own cheating our own. He would have been called wicked or awful or terrible. And yet toward this picture of an evil traitorous man, even to him, Jesus said, follow me. This is a general call that even goes out to those who would be known as wicked. He heard the call, Levi did, and reacted different than so many others we see in the scriptures. He heard the call, and when Christ called, he at once, it says, left everything, got up, and followed Christ. Now, a lot of people who comment on this, they, they, they kind of elevate the sincerity of what it means for him to leave everything. It would have been him leaving his career, a point of no return. He wasn't like a fisherman who would have taken time out to learn from Jesus, but he could always go back and fish. He would have almost given up his credentials. You know, if he was an attorney, he would have, he would have actually been almost disbarred at that moment, no longer allowed to practice as an attorney. And he follows Christ, leaving his place. Now, Christian, I think it's important for you and me to see the path of Jesus' proclamation. How did Jesus' path of proclamation go? Well, it went by his word, and it went out generally. He calls, he invites, he summons people to himself. Even someone like Levi, it is, in a way, indiscriminate in how it would go out. Here, it went out to a tax collector, a despicable man. And God promises in the scriptures to particularly and specifically draw everyone he desires to himself. But the way that he does draw everyone to himself is his gospel going out without discrimination. Now, you and I, Christian, 
are, frankly, if you think about it, are around so many Levi's. You know, who do you sit next to? <laughs> Maybe in here. Who do you work next to? Who do you always see at the coffee shop? Who do you live near? What kid is in your house? What family member just always seemed to show up? Who is the Levi? I think, I think there's a general, it's not the main point of the text, but I think there's a general understanding here that Jesus broadcasted his grace even toward this man. Here he went to a tax collector. You and I are around so many others, whether someone in your home or someone in your family tree or someone at your club's table. There are Levi's out there, and God never intends his calling to be silently sent. You know, it's not like you might plant a really nice flower about, around a bunch of weeds and expect, oh, those weeds will turn into flowers. If I'm just, if I'm just present, like a ministry of presence, I'm just there. No, the, the call of God is always the verbal proclamation of the deliverance of the Son. Nobody is too wicked for the gospel's call. Nobody is too hardened, too worldly, or far removed from what they need in their hearts. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. No heart is too hard or too worldly to be changed, but it's done through a call. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, many of you may have heard this call, whether long ago or even through a song this morning or through the, through the calling of someone around you through a friendship. Do you know how to respond to this call? I mean, you see, you see Levi just got up and followed him. You, you might not have that opportunity to just leave your tax booth and start following Jesus around like this. But are you waiting to respond to this call? Or are you too patient with this call? Knowing that it's out there, but you've got time to figure out life around you, you've just given a couple of moments to really syncretize everything that's in your calendar within what's in his. Do you think that the ability to respond maybe is even too much or it's no way true at all? If that's a thought in your head, I want to encourage you to put that out, to examine what the call is altogether, and we'll get at the direction of this call in a moment. But if you've heard the call, that the calling of Christ for you, the calling from the Word to you is to respond. And so take, take stock, take examination, take the ability to actually think through, why am I not responding to what all these people seem to respond to? And recognize who the calling is for. So Jesus came to call. There's a pathway for his pursuit, his he came calling, but secondly, it's helpful for us to know who exactly is he calling. You might think it's not you. You may think it's someone else, but who are the people of his proclamation? So secondly, look at the, look at the people of his proclamation. Understand who Christ came speaking to was what makes the gospel so great. It is wonderful that he came. It is wonderful that he even came triumphantly. It's wonderful that he came and was perfect and was was awesome and holy, and you and I can spend the rest of our lives marveling around this, but to whom the very gospel goes to is what makes the gospel so great. The Christian organization called Legionnaire Ministries puts out what is a survey of what is called the state of theology every other year, and they ask true-false questions to all kinds of people, every kind of person. True-false questions. The first question that they ask is everyone's sin. So true-false, everyone sins a little, but most people by nature, are good. So everyone sins a little, but most people, by nature, are good. True or false? The, the answer is false. Now, 69% of non-evangelicals, 69% of non-evangelicals say true. And amazingly, 40% of evangelicals also say true. So 40%, you think of us, maybe, maybe this side of the room, 40% of this room says everyone is actually good by nature. 
They ask another question, true or false, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Everyone's born innocent in the eyes of God, true or false. Non-evangelicals say true at an 80% mark, and evangelicals say by 50% true. This is alarming. What it shows is that too many people who claim to be Christians actually don't know the gospel. They certainly don't know who the gospel is for. If I'm a, if I'm a little bit good, then why do I need to be changed at all? If I'm by nature fine, then why do I need someone coming up to me and saying that I need my life invaded by this gospel? If I'm fine, then I don't need to be a part of that at all. Now, theologically, 69%, 40%, 80%, 50%, all these are wrong. Everyone sins, and nobody, according to the Scriptures, nobody is good by nature. Nobody is born innocent in the eyes of God. The Bible is clear on that. You can see hundreds of verses that talk about man's innermost need from birth even through their actions. But because you by nature are not good, because you by nature are a sinner, because you by nature are guilty, again, this is where the gospel is actually very offensive, right? Just saying, you by nature are not good. This is what every mother does not want to tell their kid. What do they always say? You're so special. You're amazing. I'm your number one fan. I mean, what would you do if your mom actually looked at you and said, you know what? You're actually terrible. And that's my fault because I'm terrible too. Like that would, that would really shock you. And even, even you, if you're here as a non-Christian, we recognize how, how startling of statements these are from the scriptures, where by nature we are in great need. But because of that, this is what Jesus brings and is called good news. It's only to sinners with whom Jesus shares his gospel. It is only with those who are far removed, you could say, in a societal way. Only the outcasts, only those who are in sin, only those who are in great need. Because you are in great need, the gospel goes out to you. Only sinners are recipients of Jesus' words here. Look at verse 31 and 32. These, these verses serve as an analogy and as a pronouncement to a particular people as a summary of God's grace. So something just happened in verses 29 through 30, and then Jesus gives this pronouncement of what he's even talking about. The verses before verse 31 talk about Jesus summoning Levi, a tax collector, and Levi responding to God's grace was so pumped up that he, a receiver of God's grace, wanted everyone to know about God's grace. He was fired up at the news that he had just received. So what do you do when you're fired up and you want to be around all kinds of people? You throw a party. You throw a party for yourself and you throw a party as if to convince people of what you've just been told. So he threw a party there in the text. He was, he was known to be rich, and so he would have lived in a big home. You can imagine going up to this party like in a Gatsby type of way. Who, there would have been a lot of elite friends that would have been friends with Levi. Now, granted, I want you to, I want you to have not a picture of like an oil tycoon who struck it rich overnight. I want you to think of Levi being this successful person of someone who maybe created something or did something that was good and added value to society. But Levi, Levi would have been more of a mobster. And so he would have cheated people. They, they had tax collectors in that part of the Roman era had free reign to collect, let's say, 10% and give it to Rome, but they were allowed to collect 20% or 30% or 40%. Or for you, you seem nice, so I'll get 50% from you. You, you seem down on your luck, I'll get 30% from you. And they got, to keep, they got to keep the overflow of those taxes. So he was like a loan shark. He was like a mobster in people's minds. So when people would have gone by his house, they wouldn't have said, oh man, that's someday going to be turned into some kind of museum or mansion that's so cool. They would have almost cursed it every time they drove by. They would have said, whoever lives in there is a scoundrel. 
And now he's got lots of people coming in for a party, just to paint the scene there. He throws a party, he invites all his friends, and Jesus is invited. And Jesus shows up. This amazing, important person everyone recognized as him being holy and gracious and merciful and good. Now he's going to a mobster's house to be celebrated. This party is thrown in his honor. Levi wanted to introduce everyone to Jesus. No doubt wanting everyone to have happened to them what happened to him. No doubt it would be like Jesus, call them to yourself like you did me. Tell them the good news. And maybe off to the side, we see this in verse 30. So in the context of the story, off to the side, verse 30, there would have been these people called Pharisees who would have hated every single thing that was happening before them. They would have thought first, calling Levi? Ugh, why would you call that guy? Second, they'd stone Levi if they could. But then you have a party in that house, and you go built by our taxes? Seriously? But then third, he's not even going to the party. A lot of us have gone to parties, and we just want to be a wallflower. We have to make an appearance, but we don't really want to go. But third, Jesus would have been talking to them, sharing with their food, reclining at their table. Would have been fully part of this party, according to the text. So what do they do there in the text? What does it say they do, these, these Pharisees? Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink? with these people, they grumble. They, the, the word here is they literally grumble. You know, you've, you've seen the cartoons where the Muppets are just like, harumph, harumph, harumph. That's what it would have sounded like. That's what they would have done. We've all seen it, right? Can't believe he's talking to her. Back in the day, we'd never do that. Can't believe he's hanging out with them. We, we kind of hear these kinds of things today when we see maybe godly people trying to intervene in other people's lives by placing them around those in great need of the gospel. There's a glorious sense of passive-aggressive sin going on at its finest. I can't believe you're doing that. Why would you do that? Yet the Lord is speaking to whom? The, the person of this text. Who is, who is God's call going out toward yet again? Sinners. They asked him what he's doing. He answers. Look at verse 31. It's a, he, they asked him a question. He answers them. And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said in thick sarcasm, look around, guys. Look around at this party. Look around this house. This isn't a health club. It's a hospital. Yeah, they might think they're important, but Levi knows they're not because Levi was once one of them. And what have I come to do? I've come for the sick. He says, I'm here for sinners. There's, and there's irony in his answer. There's downright sarcasm in that. These are, these are biting words. It's biting sarcasm that you can see read through this text. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he turns their interpretation of righteousness and sinfulness on its head by actually pointing at them and saying, I've come for them. What does that mean for you? I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying in this passage that people are out there and they're sick. And he's the doctor who associates with his patients. What made Levi so bad? Like I said before, today's version of a loan shark you can Google what a tax collector would be like in biblical times. There's a ton of work out there and what a tax collector would do and wouldn't do. But the point is this. Someone like him wouldn't be out there seeking help from God. Their livelihood was on preying on people. They weren't out there seeking for fulfillment in a spiritual way. They certainly weren't out there aiming to bring glory to God through Christ. 
they were self-indulgent. They were selfish. They were self-obsessed. They were self-grandizing. They would have been clearly known and explained as a sinner. And he would have been considered the worst of the worst by his own doing. And yet to him was who Jesus says he came for. That, and that's the heart of the gospel, friends. It's, the heart of the gospel is aimed at sinners. It's for sinners. In the parable in Matthew 22, Jesus goes out and asks his servants to go into the highways and the byways and just get the low lives and bring them into the banquet. The sweetness of the gospel is that it actually sees you, friend, for who you truly are. Not the covering that you want to present. You know, I wore a jacket today, so you'd find me impressive. Not the, not the, things, uh, not the things that you, we, we might try to make a mask over our hearts for, but actually he knows like an x-ray or like an MRI, what makes you truly you, and he goes to it. And he calls out at it to come to him. The gospel is for sinners, and God doesn't save the righteous, but the sinner. The scriptures say that there's nobody righteous. Nothing about you is righteous in God's eyes because of your sin and your nature. There's nothing about you, the the scriptures say, that is righteous because of who you are. And you can't mask it. You can't gloss over it. You can't even trivialize it. You can't lowball it. You can't say, well, I'm just in a certain circumstances so a certain set of circumstances, so I can ignore it for a while. Rather, a person must understand the desperate, sinful wickedness of the human heart so that a person understands themselves as poor. Or the scriptures will say, like, as a prisoner, bound in their sinfulness. Or, or it gives the, gives the analogy of someone who is blind and oppressed, headed for a Christless, godless eternity in hell. This offer of salvation is not only there for your taking just because it's like an a la carte or a buffet, but if you reject it, Jesus says you deserve the wrath that you fully brought onto yourself. And you accept it, then what he's saying is he'll actually take that wrath for you so you can have life with him eternally. And if that person, or if you, by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit, can come to a true assessment of your own sinful heart and an understanding of the grace of God provided through faith in Jesus, then that's how you can be saved. Understanding who you are and understanding who Jesus is, recognizing what his call means for your life, that's how salvation is enacted. These men, think of the people on the side, these Pharisees and their scribes, they were, they were so lost that they then had no mercy for sinners. They didn't need any for themselves, no mercy for themselves. They didn't have any to give other people because they hadn't received any mercy on their own part. And so they raged with hate at the merciful physician. They couldn't even connect the dots with what he was doing. Now, the message of this verse is clear to you and me. God has offered grace to sinners and offers you grace today. He offers you mercy. God in Christ actually offers you full forgiveness of who you are, full mercy of what makes you you. He'll forgive you of all your sins if you'll come to him. And he won't do anything for people who think that they're okay. It's like the offer is being dismissed and off the table altogether. He won't do anything for people who think they're righteous. He won't do anything for people who think they're good. I remember I uh, was not great at geometry in my ninth grade year, and so I'd constantly go to my teacher and ask for help, you know, always last minute. It's like the test is tomorrow. All of a sudden, I need Sokotoa explained to me. I had all the semester to do this, and I remember she, she took me outside of the class where other people were, and she said, I, I need you to understand first that you need complete help in math. Not just a little bit of help, you need complete help. And at that point, you can relate. why are you all laughing? 
And at that point, you can actually understand how much you need in front of you. The gospel isn't for people who think they have most things figured out, where they're at like 90% of fulfillment's capacity, but rather they're at zero. It's there that the gospel actually works. It's made up of recognizing that you are a sinner altogether. So he came to call sinners. He came to call sinners for a particular reason. And it's not made up, the sinful mess or the people of the message who he comes for is not made up of those who are good. It's made up of people who know that they're not okay. Now, the late Archbishop in England, J.C. Ryle, said that we need to be frequently reminded that Jesus did not come merely as a teacher, but as a savior of lost sinners. And we also need to recognize, we need to frequently be reminded, Ryle says, that sinners can only receive benefit from him who will confess that they are ruined, bankrupt, hopeless, and miserable. So you have a path. We recognize a path of Jesus' proclamation. We have a person of Jesus' proclamation in mind. But what does this person do with this message? What has Jesus called you and I, these people, to do? Third and finally, we see that there is a purpose for the proclamation of God going out. The gospel, we recognize, is the good news that our holy God has not abandoned his people even though they are sinners, but because he has rescued them for himself through the death and resurrection of God the Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the message that though men and women, you think of this, are, are separated from a holy God, it's, it's God the Spirit who awakens their soul or gives, gives light to what was death and draws them to himself, causes them or purposes them to now turn from who they are and repent from their sin to a life of faith in Christ Jesus as their only hope. If we are far removed, it is also an act of God to not only call us to himself, but also it's, a, it's the same act of God to actually draw us to himself by actually turning your affections to him. So God in Christ arrives and he speaks This is the message of Christmas, that he speaks to sinners, and he says, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus to forgive you and to give you new life. Now, the word in your text, if you just look at it, stare at it, mark it, underline it, repentance. I want to talk briefly about that. Two years ago, I preached a 55-minute sermon on the doctrine of repentance, and it wasn't recorded, so I'm going to do that again right now. There's a Kevin DeYoung, thank you, Ryan. There's a Kevin DeYoung article, Kevin DeYoung article called The Missing Word in Our Modern Gospel, and it says that too much gospel preaching sounds like a slightly spiritualized version of that old Christina Aguilera song, you are beautiful, no matter what they say, words can't bring you down, you are beautiful in every single way. But the author of the article goes on to say that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves the way that Jesus and the apostles did. Their message was not a message of unconditional affirmation. They showed no interest in helping people find the hidden and beautiful self deep inside. They did not herald the good news that that God likes you just the way you are, but rather Christ's calling was for you, sinner, to enjoy the fullness of new life by turning from yourself. Repentance in Luke 5, this word, means to change one's mind or to change one's purpose. You can think of a ship at sea repenting by actually turning around from wherever it's going. It's not just your brain cells functioning differently, but your inner conscience is actually changing. Your affections change, Jonathan Edwards says so brilliantly. Now, fundamental change of attitude 
is actually taking place toward your sin and toward the purpose of your life. Repentance looks like turning away from that. Repentance involves the deliberate turning from sin to righteousness. It's not just turning aimlessly to another option, but rather God in Christ came to call you sinner to turn from yourself, your way, to His way, to His righteous living. This is where Jesus is not only our Savior, but is, our, is the object of our faith and the object of our affections. To repent means you can define who you are, confess that it is wrong and your need for it to be removed, and then finally to turn to Christ. So what repentance looks like is it looks like a definition, an acknowledgement, and actually a, an action of turning from it. A definition, an acknowledgement, and a turning from it. I, I want to give you three categories of thinking through repentance to finish this out. The, the first action of, of repentance is actually having sorrow for your sin. You're grieved over offending God because of something unholy. You have sorrow because of offending God, because, not because of the punishment that you might get, but because you've offended a holy person. Brooke and I adopted our dog. I don't know what you call it. We rescued him or whatever they say. It was from a pound. She says it was from a rescue center. It was from a pound. And, our, and our do- our do- we have a phenomenal dog because it's literally the laziest thing in the world. It didn't do anything, so you don't have to babysit it. But every now and then, we'll come home. I'll come home from work, and some- something happened. He-, he made an accident, or he did something wrong. And all you have to do is look at him and say, Duncan, and he will cower and drop to the floor, and we recognize that it's because his previous owner clearly beat him. The sorrow that our dog has is not like the sorrow that you are called to have over your sin. Duncan, our dog, is afraid of consequences. He's afraid of a newspaper, a fly swatter. You have to hide it from it every time you bring it in the house. What God calls you to be sorrowful is not the punishment that you rightly deserve, but how in in light of God's holiness, you have sinned against Him. You have sinned against His glory, His namesake, His kingdom, His perfection. You have made it, you have blotted it. So to look So to have sorrow in your own repentance, it is recognizing that you have grieved a holy God, where the emphasis of repentance, keep in mind, is not on you or your punishment, but on God. Not the consequences of sin, but on offending God, which causes more sorrow than any outcome. Think of someone who you truly love, maybe your spouse or your fiance or your mom or a good friend, and you've hurt them. That's what sorrow looks like. Second thing is confession. It's not only defining it with sorrow, but also confessing it. Repentance is the act of changing your mind's thought of what is sinful and telling that to God. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just laying in bed, recognizing you've done a bad thing, but it's actually recognizing and acknowledging that sin from God's perspective. So confessing that sin. We, we, have, we have a regular occurrence of corporate confession on a Sunday morning. That's what, that's what our confession ought to look like on a private basis. Actually calling out to God that I have sinned against you but what my hands have done, but what my eyes have seen, but what my heart has thought about, by the anger that I have, I have sinned against you, God. But then lastly, it, what repentance looks like is the actual change in action or the, the act of living or the act of walking in trust. Finally, repentance is pursuing Christ's view of righteousness. It means trusting that God will satisfy your soul by getting off the app on your phone. Trusting that God will satisfy your soul by pursuing God's glory and not your own exaltation. It's by trusting that God will satisfy you in the person of Christ by not lashing back in anger against someone else. It's the, it's the change in action 
towards the path that God has put in front of you. On and on you could go. The life of repentance is a relationship with God and all that comes with trusting Him, recognizing that you have done wrong, but when you are near Him, He will not lead you astray. All right, so let me take a major step back here. We just kind of went into an observation of Him speaking, a recognition of who we are, and then this diatribe of doctrinal explanation of what repentance is. I want you to take a step back. Jesus came and calls you to something in particular. Now, you're going to be tempted to be like the Pharisees and hear from Christ to repent and start looking for rules to follow. You're you're going to hear that and go, okay, if I mess up on this, then I need five ways to follow Jesus perfectly. Take a step back. But what here, understand what true repentance looks like, is you hear the call of the gospel, and then more than anything else, you look to Christ, His holiness, His perfection, His beauty, His wisdom, His glory, and then recognize who you are. And then keep looking to Christ. So view Christ, view yourself, and what Jesus' broadcasting call is, is for you to decide. You want more of you? Look at yourself. Or you want more of Him? Christ came to call you to Himself, not you for more of yourself. The greatest man ever came and calls you to Himself as the salvation of your soul. If you want all of Him, you'll turn from yourself and call out to Him for your Savior. If you want all of Him, you'll call out to Him to purify your soul. If you want all of Him, you'll call out to Him to make you wise like He is wise. Your hope in true life is only to be found in Him. So friend, recognize, why did Jesus come? He came to call you to Himself. And may it be all of our prayer to focus our hearts continually on Him. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is your truth and your word and your way that allows us to see reality for what it really is. God, we are grieved by who we are in our sin, but we are thankful for who you are and what you have done for us. God, we are grateful that you sent your son and he lives in such a way that we could, all of our sin could be counted on him and all of, our righteous, all of his righteousness could be counted on us. And so, God, we pray that you would shape us and transform us into his likeness, recognizing the joy that we have in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.